Welcome back, everyone. Jose Nino here, bringing you another thought-provoking episode of El Nino Speaks. Today, I have the great pleasure of being joined by Mark Faber, the publisher of the Gloom, Boom, and Doom Report newsletter and the director of Mark Faber LTD. Anything new and exciting going on with you these days, Mark? Well, I think in life, there is uh, every day some excitement. Because if you look at life like a continuous process where every moment is a new moment, uh, that will never again happen. So I could say that life is uh, exciting every day. And of course, we have nowadays uh, further excitement because of the incompetence of elected uh, democratic <laughs> politicians around <laughs> oh, the yes. world. Yes. There are plenty of happenings and other exciting and terrifying things going on these days. Now, before we go into the nitty-gritty about the insanity that is unfolding on the world stage, could you give my listeners a brief overview of your work over like the past okay. few decades? Well, uh, to put it very briefly, I was born in Switzerland in 1946, and uh, I went to primary school in the Geneva-speaking part, in the French-speaking part and German-speaking part. Afterwards, I went to high school and university, and then I was for a while uh, in the ski team, and uh, I finished my studies uh, with a PhD about uh, the financial reform of Robert Peel, who in England in 1842 introduced sadly an income tax. <laughs> but at the same time, he essentially abandoned or abolished the Navigation Acts and uh, brought about to England free trade. He reduced tariffs or eliminated tariffs notably the Corn Laws, and so he was a very pro-free trade advocate under the influence of Richard Copton. And then after my studies were completed, I started to work in 1970 in New York for an American investment bank called White Weldon Company, which was a West Coast investment bank, mostly uh, it had been founded by wealthy and uh, influential Boston families, Boston traders, including traders in opium and so forth. <laughs> and then uh, White Weld uh, in the 70s didn't do well because this was a horrible time for financial markets and for brokerage firms in America. And so they merged with Merrill Lynch in 1978. And I had opened the Hong Kong office for White Weld in 73. I had moved from New York uh, to uh, Hong Kong. And then in 78, I left uh, White Weld because I didn't want to work for Merrill Lynch. And I don't think Merrill Lynch was keen to have me work for them. And then I opened the offices for Drexel Burnham Lambert in Hong Kong and then Singapore, and was running it until 
they went uh, out of business in 1990. They went bust. And then I started my own business, Mark Faber Limited, which essentially managed money and uh, provided investment advice for institutions and wealthy individuals. And this I kept, and I still have an office in Hong Kong, but I don't take new clients. I just uh, do my own work, and I still manage some money for clients. And uh, I write my reports, uh, the Gloom, Boom, and Doom report, and then I have a slightly uh, simpler report, which is published also monthly. So this is my world. And I live now mostly in the north of Thailand. I also have a house in Vietnam, but mostly I stay in the north of Thailand in the so-called Golden Triangle, where I'm in uh, Chiang Mai, which is the second largest city in Thailand. Yeah, it's pretty fascinating stuff there. Um, I've, I've been noticing a growing trend of people heading eastward, which we'll, we will touch upon later on in the interview. Now, you've you're pretty renowned for your contrarian analysis on economic affairs. How do you view the collective West economic prospects in the present and for the rest of the decade? I'm sorry to say I have the feeling that the current policymakers have embarked on suicidal socioeconomic and uh, economic policies. In my view, there's nothing positive about the Western governments at the present time with their uh, very poorly designed interventions that are uh, truly destructive and uh, not growth enhancing. You, You understand, we have to decide in a society what do we want. We can be a perfectly happy society, possibly, if we don't have any development at all and we live like in the Stone Age. Possibly this uh, is a model that someone could argue, well, the people in this uh, Stone Age time living in caves, they didn't have to worry about money. When they were hungry, they went to hunt and so forth. And then they went home and they beat up the wives and slept with the wives and produced children. Three quarters of them would die and uh, maybe 20, 30 percent would survive. But the survivors would be strong. So that's a model of a society or you can have a nomadic society. But as it stands, we are a modern society. We have cities, we have uh, organizations and We have to try to make out of this the best we can. And uh, it has been observed that in general, people feel happy when they do things, when they are free and they are unhappy if they're compelled to do things, you know, like under a socialist regime or under totalitarian rule, uh, you are forced to do certain things. So you're you're not particularly happy. And in general, people feel happier if their standards of uh, living improve. So I think we have a society nowadays, and then we have to think about how do we do the best possible outcomes or reach the best possible outcomes 
for this society. And I think to go to war and to intervene with uh, really uh, damaging measures like uh, lockdowns and so forth is inappropriate, especially uh, in democratically elected governments. Absolutely, yeah. And I think we're also starting to witness the demise of so-called liberal democracies, especially in light of the government's responses to the Wuhan virus, because it was a definitely a mask-off moment for the Western ruling class in that instance. Well, I've been hearing some speculation from people that there are perhaps a handful of central banks in the West that are potentially considering interest rate hikes and some forms of marginal monetary contractions, if you will. How much credence do you give that speculation or are Western governments so far gone that they will continue pursuing expansionist monetary policies? Well, I wished uh, I could answer this question with great confidence. You are right. Uh, essentially, if you look at the standards of living, and they've all gone down now over the last, say, two, three years, but for many people, they've been going down for 20, 30 years. I mean, in America, the Federal Reserve publishes, uh, that's one of the very few items that they do positively. They have actually a staff that uh, produces statistics that are quite useful. Among them is uh, our statistics about the wealth of people at a, a given age and their income in nominal and real terms. So. A 35-year-old person today, he will have adjusted for inflation much less money than his parents had when they were 35. In other words, say his parents in the 1980s or so, they had some savings at 35. Nowadays, uh, mo most people have very little savings at 35 years of age. And then you can measure how much does someone earn when he's 35 after tax. And so people in uh, the 1980s, 1970s, uh, at 35, they earned more. So you take my case, when I finished my studies, I rented an apartment in Zurich, which is the largest city in Switzerland. And it's a, a relatively important financial center, not the most important, but the relatively important, certainly for the coal market. In any case, I had in the best location of the city an apartment that cost me approximately 12% of my salary. Please show me anyone in New York, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco, London, Berlin, Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, who can live in the best location of a city with just 12% of his salary doesn't yeah. exist anymore. Yep, it that's long gone. Be, be more likely be like 40% of his salary that just goes out of the window. Yes, that's correct. So what I want to say is that people 
you know, I've been kind of brainwashed by the authorities and the media. CNBC talks about the stock market every day. So they're all happy faces when the stock market is up and it says the stock market is roaring ahead and everything looks rosy. And when the market is down, they say, oh, the, the market is down a tad and so forth. It's all very distorted. But they never interview the man on the street. Uh, they never interview young people who just completed their studies about their difficulties in finding good jobs. They interview maybe people who went to Harvard and Yale, and then they get a job right away for $200,000 at Goldman Sachs and at uh, J.P. Morgan and so forth. But these people then also have to live in a good location relatively close to their offices. So the $200,000 earning in New York, after paying all the taxes to the communist government and socialist government, and uh, after pr paying for your private security guard, uh, there's not that much left, <laughs> if you understand. Mm -hmm. Yep, there is definitely a lot of economic upheaval that lies ahead for the collective West in the next few years. And one thing that's definitely accelerating this is the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, which is the biggest political incident of the past decade, and I'd say more broadly of the post-Cold War era. What are your general thoughts about the Russo-Ukrainian conflict, and what factors do you believe caused it? Well, to tell you the truth, as a European, I give you my European view. And uh, of course, many of your viewers or listeners will disagree. But if you look at the world map, and uh, someone came to me to you and said, look, these are the different regions uh, in China. They produce lots of goods, industrial goods. And in America, they're large consumers of everything that uh, is produced in the world. And they borrow a lot of money. And then you have precision in Japan and precision in Germany and in Switzerland. And in Europe, you have essentially a wonderful environment of cultural sites and the atmosphere is very nice for a tourist but they also have high-end products and high-end real estate markets and so forth and so on and then you have this russia and the former soviet union that is not particularly uh, geared towards industrial production but they have very large resources, industrial commodities, precious metals, oil, and so forth. And here you have Europe. It's in the proximity. Uh, both are, have similar cultures. If you go back to the 19th century and you look at the history of music, they played the same music essentially in Russia and in Paris. And they had the same type of ballet in Russia, in Moscow, and in Paris, and in uh, Leningrad, and uh, in other words, in St. Petersburg. And so we are culturally very close to the Russians, actually. And nowadays, you have this 
theory about trade. Trade is the most profitable and makes the most sense between countries that are very different. There's no great benefit trading between, say, France and Germany and Switzerland and Germany. Between France and Germany, the, the French produce better cheese and wine than the Germans, and the Germans produce maybe better cars. Who knows? The French would disagree with that, but that's my view. And so there is some benefit, but between Russia and Europe, you have every resource that you would wish in Russia, in the proximity of Western Europe. And in Europe, you have all the in industries that can produce goods for the Russian consumer, which number 150 million, but with the former Soviet Union, Eastern European bloc, and the Central Asian bloc, and so forth, would number probably uh, close to 250 million people. So this is a natural combination. But here come the politicians. And somewhere, somehow, under the influence of NATO and the US, which is essentially running NATO, there is this uh, media and the politicians that suddenly start to kind of demonize Russia and in particular Putin. And they lead to a provocation because it is not in the advantage of the US to have a prosperous Europe trading with uh, Russia. So they kind of split them apart and engineer a war. This is the more educated European view of what has happened. Now, nobody says that Putin was right to uh, launch the aggression against Ukraine, but he laid it very clearly to the European powers and to the US and NATO. He didn't want to have NATO and American and NATO missile bases in Ukraine, which is a reasonable uh, demand. The US wouldn't like to have Russian or Chinese uh, missile bases in the Caribbean, in Mexico, and in Canada. It's a reasonable request. Uh, we have spheres of influence. Influence. Yep. influence, yes. And uh, Ukraine, and especially especially the island of Krim, is in the interest of uh, Russia. It has no strategic interest at all for the U.S., but it has a strategic importance for Russia for the access to the Mediterranean. That they will never give up. Yeah, we, we are actually entering now a stage of geopolitics that approximates the late 19th century, if you will, where you actually have like spheres of influence not and not a so-called unipolar order of the post-Cold War era that the U.S. and its satrapies in NATO have dominated. And you have like a lot of people talking about this new multipolar world order that's unfolding on the world stage. In what direction do you believe the world is going once the dust settles from the present Russo-Ukrainian conflict? 
Well, very good question. I mean, they asked uh, Einstein <laughs> once at the dinner, uh, how will the next world war look like? He said, I don't know how the next war world war will look like, but after the next world war, if there is ever again a war, uh, which will be the fourth war, it will be fought with knives and uh, stones and uh, forks. <laughs> you understand? We'll back to the Stone Ages because next war is likely to destroy a lot of what we have, a lot. And so I would rather work towards a, a world of understanding and of uh, peaceful coexistence than a world of uh, coercing people and forcing people to do. And by the way, the intentions of some people, I'm not saying that the U.S., because it, we have to distinguish in the U.S., the man on the street, he doesn't want any foreign involvement and wars and so forth. He wants to have uh, his uh, breakfast. He wants to live a decent lifestyle. He doesn't want to have inflation exceeding his wage increases and so forth. So his demands are relatively simple. But the neocons and some really ugly interventionists, they want power. They're power hungry. And they want to essentially expand NATO to the whole world. And they seem to want to control the world, including China. And I think uh, maybe they could push around Russia to some extent, but not as much as they felt. The sanctions are not working the way they expected. Well, to some extent, they're working the way they expected because, of course, there's big corruption in this money transfer to Ukraine that we know already from the son of the present uh, president in the U.S. So this has worked in some favor to the Western government, but they didn't think that Russia would be able to carry on for so long. And it looks as if Russia is not going to give in unless there is a peace treaty. But there, it didn't look as if the West, especially Boris Johnson in uh, the UK and the US, as if they were willing to negotiate for a settlement. And my concern is that the US, these uh, not very nice people in the State Department, that they now try to do the same with China namely to provoke China into a conflict. And that could backfire very badly. Yeah, this is, we've reached really absurd levels of geopolitical illiteracy and I would, and I would venture to say even insanity with the way things are going. But that's what happens when you have neoconservative and neoliberal interventionists running foreign policy because for them, the entire globe is like the U.S.'s sphere of influence that has to be remade in the U.S.'s increasingly dysfunctional image. And that will just result in massive disaster. Now, going back to Europe, uh, I'd like to talk about energy because it's actually kind of funny when you think about it. 
when you look at countries like Germany, it's <laughs> almost implementing its own Morgenthau plan by destroying its industrial sector through the self-destructive sanctions war that it's joined the the rest of the West with, and also through its like destruction of like reliable energy sources such as like natural gas and all that. And what you see now is that Europe is staring down the barrel of a very harsh winter. Do you see the economic situation in Europe being worse than the U.S. when it's all said and done? Yes, I think it's worse than the U.S. And uh, it's actually visible to you and your to your listeners because they only have to look at the course uh, of the euro over the last 12 to 24 months and at the direction of the yen. And so they can see these currencies have been very weak against the U.S. dollar. And clearly, we have in Europe, you have that less. You have some, but less than we have. We have the green communists. The green communists are largely, completely ignorant people that got into the government because of the excuse, green, 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 and so forth. And the media was streaming green, green, green. Mm -hmm. But in reality, they pursue a policy that is completely irrational. You understand? I mean, philosophically, we have established uh, different views over the last 3,000 years. But uh, it is, uh, in general, accepted that we need to be or have some rational views and take some rational decisions that are not just based on emotions and on instinct. And uh, in Europe, when you think about it, the Greens, they don't want nuclear energy. Now, what is the cleanest energy in the world? It's nuclear. That, but that they don't want. They actually close down the nuclear facilities. Then they think that, well, you can throw out all the fossil fuels, coal, natural gas, and oil, and replace it with windmills, you know, simply put. First of all, they haven't calculated the environmental impact of producing one blade of a windmill. And how do you then dispose that blade? Because they don't last forever. And so forth and so on. So you understand that if the green energy leads to lower carbon dioxide emissions in the long run, and it's cost effective, then by all means. But if it leads to actually more usage of fossil fuels, at the present time, they use more coal than ever before because they stole the import of gas and oil. And coal is probably the worst for the environment. But this is what has happened under the Greens. And a battery, nobody has really answered the question to us, 
how do you dispose of the old batteries? Because not some parts you can recycle, but not all parts. And to produce a battery needs a lot of energy. <laughs> so <laughs> it's not the equation is not as simple as the simpleton green communists seem to think. I'm all in favor of conserving the environment and everybody having to make an effort. But I'm not in favor of everybody making an effort. And then the politicians and these green fanatics flying around in the private jets and <laughs> yeah. lecturing the world. Yeah, irony you, right there. You understand? That is the problem of the today's government. In former times, we had aristocracies and we have royalties and we have theocracies and so forth and so on. But when someone made a bad decision or a big mistake, they chopped off his head and threw him away and got a new leader. How do you want to get rid of the, a democracy in a democracy? Every leader, everybody in, in a cabinet says, oh, it's not my mistake. It's because Mr. Trump did something or because that person did something or because of the Chinese. Oh, it's all because of Mr. Putin. And Lagarde, who is the president of the ECB, she is clueless and she's also a criminal by both. She was... Uh, convicted for essentially corruption in France, but then the government washed the case on the carpet. But the point is, she uh, says, oh, we have rising inflation because of uh, climate change. The climate change, if anything, should be deflationary. The moment you print money, because of climate change, as central banks have done and continue to do, it's a different story. Money printing, that I think we can all agree, has something to do with money supply grows and credit grows. And if you print money, as central banks have done in recent years, you get uh, symptoms of inflation. Either you get asset inflation, so real estate prices go up, stock prices go up, commodity prices go up, art prices go up, collectibles and so forth and so on, or you get consumer price inflation or both. But it has to do with money printing. But Lagarde says, oh, is that is because of climate change. That is what I object and what I'm concerned about. That is completely incompetent people that are in government are there. And Milton Friedman already said in the 70s, he said, the problem is not these people. The problem are the voters that they vote for these people. They put them in place. You should have to change the voters, essentially, or their attitudes. But the voters, as Blatt already observed, you know, in a democracy, you have mob rule. The mob, they, they see someone they think is guilty, they want to lynch him. They don't want to analyze is he guilty or not guilty, just want to lynch him. And in a democracy, this mob, they elect all kinds of shady characters who talk well, but know nothing. 
the so-called demagogues. Yep, I have never seen any government anywhere in history that is as incompetent as, say, Mr. Trudeau. Ah, yes. Yeah. You know, this is MP now the suit. poster child, a typical person who goes to the WEF. In my opinion, the WEF is an extremely evil organization. Nothing to do with democracy, has nothing to do with freedom. On the contrary, they are an organized authoritarian, totalitarian type of organization. The new prime minister in England, she's also a member of that organization, Liz Trust. <laughs> yeah, but it's all one massive group of empty suits that just engage. Empty suits, right. Correct. Engage, yep. That engage a group think, and that type of group think always leads to to the, the stupidest and most pernicious policies imaginable. You're from Switzerland, and I was just curious because Switzerland's always like stood out as being like the more like the like the most sane of the Western governments. How has their government responded amidst all this present insanity? Would you say that they're like the only voice of reason in a sea of total globalist insanity? No, unfortunately, Switzerland, uh, the major cities have become very socialist. So we have a very large uh, uh, socialist influence on politics. And uh, if the socialists had their ways, uh, we would be member of the EU and we would no longer be independent and we would be member of NATO and all kinds of international organizations, which we are already, but we're not yet an EU member. But they tried to push Switzerland into the EU through back doors. And more recently, and to my great dismay, I've been now asked to join a, a committee to maintain Swiss neutrality. They essentially abandoned neutrality and they went along with all the sanctions against Russia, which, you know, we would have to analyze very carefully what caused the conflict. And so far, we know that essentially in America, some people wanted to go to war, period. This is the most avoidable war that ever was. One could have said to Putin, okay, we will not include Ukraine into NATO, we'll include it into the EU. And we declare the Ukraine as a kind of a neutral zone. That would have satisfied the interest of Russia. Yeah, there's a huge dearth of statecraft in Europe now, which is actually kind of sad due to the fact this is a place that produced the likes of Klaus von Metternich and Otto von Bismarck, who knew how to craft diplomatic solutions to existential geopolitical crises. But that's testament to how 
far things have decayed in the old continent and the broader West. Yes, I'm convinced that there is some money flowing on the table uh, with some people in Europe. It's also, Europe has basically no war with China and no kind of broad competitive position. But they have now also managed to kind of build anti-Chinese sentiment in Europe. Uh, in other words, under the influence of NATO and so forth. And uh, the whole thing is actually, in my view, very dangerous because, you know, Biden says, oh, I united NATO. We've never been so close together. That is a very tenuous statement because, like, Turkey is a member of NATO, but Erdogan disapproves with a lot of measures, with the sanctions against Russia. And he himself says that the Western countries, essentially, are responsible for the conflict, that this was a provocation, and that the Western nations actually continue to provoke Putin. So there is a split there. And number two, for your information, NATO countries and the US, they make up for approximately 12% of the world's population. And the rest of the world, including China and India and Indonesia and Bangladesh and Pakistan and Nigeria, uh, these are all countries with 200 million people and more. They didn't join the sanctions at all. They have no war with the Russia. They are not in favor of Russia, but they're also not against it. And I think uh, what these policies under Biden have led to, A, a very divisive society in America, and he split the world into essentially small countries population-wise that say, okay, we are in NATO and we are with the U.S. This is West, uh, you said the satrap <laughs> of the U.S. in Europe, mm-hmm. as they call them, the vassals. And uh, the U.S. as a leadership nation and then the rest of the world. I mean, you, listen once to Indian TV <laughs> to Indian politicians, they have a very different view about the whole world than, say, uh, the British Prime Minister at the present time, Miss Truss. She was in India a few months ago and she was very badly rebuked because the Foreign Minister of India told her, Look, you have your standards, you impose your standards on, on us. Uh, we have a different standards, and we think our standards are the ones that are valid for the whole world, whereas your standards are good for your own interest. And as you can imagine, Britain is not exactly the most popular country in India since <laughs> uh, India was a colony for so long. Oh, yeah, big time. Correct me if I'm wrong. You said that you spend a lot of time between Chiang Mai in Thailand and also Hong Kong, correct? Yes, I lived in Hong Kong for almost 30 years and now 20 years here. 
So now I'm not traveling at the present time because this uh, stupid vaccine regulations and quarantine regulations and so forth. So I'm just sitting here, but normally I used to travel a lot. I used to go to the U.S. maybe six, seven times a year, but now obviously no longer. I see. What motivated you to move out east? Well, uh, what happened is I grew up in Zurich and in Switzerland. And because uh, my father was a famous surgeon and uh, because of my skiing career as a ski racer, which wasn't exactly brilliant, but for someone who was studying, it was unusual to be skiing uh, so well at the time. And so I was in a privileged group of people, say, in Switzerland. I wouldn't necessarily call them the elite, but close to the elite and so forth. And my dream had always been to go somewhere where you don't know anyone and start whatever you do and try to do your best. So when I worked in New York at White Weld, and they offered me the job to move to Asia. I said, yes, but I'd like to go. <laughs> I tried. I played hard to get. So I said, yeah, I have to think about this. I have to go and see if I like it or not. And so, so I said, okay, you can go for two or three weeks. And then you tell us you want to do it or not, because we don't want to send you there. And after six months, you tell us you're unhappy and you want to go back at school. So I went uh, for two days to Tokyo and two days to Hong Kong. And then for two weeks to Pattaya, which is kind of the center of sin and partying and boring and drinking in the world. And I said, yes, I like Asia. So I moved to Asia. But I saw the potential right away, uh, how Japan had developed post-Second World War and the emergence of Taiwan and South Korea and Hong Kong and Singapore. Uh, because in Europe, I noticed uh, compared to Asia, if you go on a Sunday somewhere in Europe, everything is closed. In Asia already then, uh, people, businessmen would go and meet you on a Sunday and you could conduct your business on Sundays and Saturdays. And people, I mean, already, even in the 80s, you know, this was more than 15 years after I had arrived in Asia, a very wealthy American from Chicago, he came to Hong Kong and said, Mark, can you please explain to me, why is Asia so poor? But nowadays this has changed because in Asia, we had populations that really worked hard, like the American pioneers of the early 19th century and late 19th century. They arrived in America. Most of them had nothing. And when you think about uh, it's interesting how these pioneers went with their wagons <laughs> with nothing into territories where there was nothing. I can tell you because I live here in Chiang Mai in the north of Thailand, this is agricultural country. If there is nothing to build something, you need a lot of work. You have to work the land and the irrigation and everything. 
And these people, they arrived in America with very little. They took a huge risk. They had sold everything they owned in Europe. They didn't own a lot. They arrived in America and they, they worked like hell. I mean, there are some very good documentaries about cities like Las Vegas. And you see it uh, because at the time Las Vegas came up, they already had photographs. In the early 19th centuries, there were no photographs. But in the late 19th century and early 20th centuries, they could take pictures. So you see these farms in Las Vegas. It's amazing that the city, there was nothing. And it grew. But this was built on hard work. And it wasn't built by a Vogue society where everybody is a victim of something. I mean, I was just talking to a dean of a university uh, before we had this discussion. He said, in an American university. And he said, Mark, this is a, a, a horrible. The attitude of people uh, that young people have in terms of, uh, oh, today the weather is not so good. I don't feel well. I don't want to take an exam. And so forth. I mean, I was brought up, you do. And you eat what is on the table, period, <laughs> with iron discipline. I think this is uh, very important in a society to have a sense of responsibility. I mean, we are here in this world and we can debate for what are we here and so forth. It's a philosophical discussion and a religious discussion. But I think we have an obligation to do our best especially if we come from families where our parents did something for us and they paid for our education and we were given opportunities to work and study and uh, travel and so forth, then we, it is our obligation to give back something to society, not necessarily as a charity, but by us working hard and showing an example of uh, some discipline that uh, you treat your employees, my employees, they respect me, not because they think that I'm necessarily smarter, but they see that I also work. They like they do. They come in the morning, they work on the fields and in the garden and in the kitchen and so forth. And I see I do the same. Based on your experience of living in Asia, and especially when you juxtapose the West and the East, do you believe that Asia, specifically East Asia, is the future of humanity? <laughs> it's a good question. <laughs> to what extent humanity has a future? <laughs> I'm an optimist, so I think, yes. I believe that... Uh, the Asian societies have uh, a lot of potential still because the markets are not yet exhausted, but it's a bumpy road. But it's always been a bumpy road. I mean, if you look at the stock market in Hong Kong since I arrived, 73, 74, it went down 90%. Index, 90 and then we had the Asian crisis, the currencies collapsed everywhere. And so, so so we have a lot of volatility, but I think that in Asia, people assume responsibility and they 
if things go bad, they go back to the family. You see, one of the big problems of the Western world is as they moved away from religion, they became, you know, socialism essentially wants to abolish religion. And in socialism, socialism is the religion. And uh, as we moved away from God, and there are good reasons why it also happened, because the church obviously didn't behave very well. But you can be a Christian and a believer, and at the same time you can be a homo economicus uh, at the same time. In other words, rational, as Kant suggested. So we can have both. And uh, my sense is that people have now new so-called religions or madness or delusions like climate change. So people have no clue about climate, talk about it, and they kind of pray to Greta Thunberg, uh, who has no clue either. <laughs> understand. So we are in a very bizarre situation or some people think, well, we need vaccines and so forth. Then they want to force the whole population to take vaccines. But they are not uh, experts in the field and they haven't uh, studied the field uh, sufficiently to have an opinion. But suddenly they have this idea. And this, in my view, is very dangerous. That's what we call the rule of the mob. And I think maybe we have to go back to a democratic system where you need some qualification to vote. In other words, you, you should be able to read and write properly and to understand what you read and write. You should speak the language of a country. And uh, ideally, you should have some property. You understand that people always talk about, oh, the Greek democracy and this democracy and that. In no democracy, and believe me, the founding fathers of America, about the last thing they thought about is that everybody should vote. It was a system designed for educated people to vote. That's why Jefferson was so keen on education. Yes, uh, you do have to have like pre a pretty educated populace and people that actually have skin in the game being property owners or net taxpayers, aka productive people. If you want to have like a sustainable civilization, but if you talk, if you advocate for that in this total clown world environment we live in, you're automatically branded as like racist or reactionary. But that's where things are going these days, unfortunately. Well, um, they. They branded me already as a racist, so I don't <laughs> care anymore. <laughs> yeah. Is that, wear that as a badge of honor, honestly, at this point. Now, just to, before we wrap things up, let's just play like a hypothetical here. Say you're dealing with a young professional who just graduated from the university and is 22 years or old, more or less, and they're living in the West. What pieces of advice would you give this individual when it comes to pursuing a lucrative career that obviously builds wealth, but also builds wealth in a way that's resistant to state interference? Well, I would say if I were 22 or 23, I think it might be easier today to make money than 
at the time I started, there's more competition. But I don't think there's a lot of competition for people who are willing to work a lot. You know, if you go to an interview and you tell uh, the prospective employer, well, I want this and I want that. I don't want to come every day to the office. Then I think uh, for me, if I, and I employed lots of people in my life, this is a very bad attitude. I want uh, some people who work for me to whom I can say, look, we have to do this today and this will be done, period. Where it takes six hours or 12 hours or 15 hours, but what has to be done has to be done, period. And if you can show this to your uh, boss that you're willing to work hard, of course, you can't work every day 15 hours. It would be a little too much. But you can work uh, for a period of two years when you're young and you have energy. It's easier to work than when you're at my age. I'm 76 years old now. But I can still, I work at least uh, 10, 12 hours a day, every day, including Saturday, Sunday. Now, my work happens to be a bit of different work than someone who is, uh, say, a carpenter or a painter or lays the steel on roofs. You know, there's some professions that are extremely tough. The health of these people is destroyed when they're 55 years old. In my business, in my uh, kind of uh, profession, you can sit on a chair and the only time I have to get up is to go to the washroom or to the garden or go to the refrigerator to get another beer or so. <laughs> but other than that, I sit comfortably. And a lot of my work is a work of interest. When I was 13 years old, I, was, uh, I went on a farm in England to work as a paying guest, but I wanted to work also. And I had to pick up potato. I can tell you, if you're not trained potato pick picker, you almost die after a day. It's unbelievably painful on your back, and it's incredibly boring. I mean, the whole day moving up, I mean, we had staff on that farm. There were ladies from the village. They could almost run and pick up these potatoes with their hands. They usually finish the row, and I was about a third in the row. <laughs> this is the hardest job you can imagine. So these type of jobs you can't do until you're 90 years old. But uh, you can do a lot of things, and I, I'm essentially fundamentally against Social Security. I think people would be better off if they saved money during their working lives for their age. And if the family was the safety net or the friends and so forth, or charities, I'm kind of against government organizing all these things. Fantastic stuff. And I believe this is a good place to wrap things up. Thank you so much, Mark, for coming on to the show. And before we depart, please promote your content to my listeners. <laughs> I don't think I should do that. But I have a website and it's called uh, 
gloomboomdoom.com. And there people can see roughly what I do. And like I have many interviews on uh, with all kinds of social media personalities. And so they can uh, see a little bit what uh, I'm doing. And uh, of course, I'm happy with uh, subscribers because the workload to write a report, whether you write for one person or for 20 people or 200 or 2,000 is about the same. I don't want too many subscribers because my reports are quite demanding and deal with uh, a little bit unusual aspects of economics. There's a lot of social sciences intertwined and geopolitics and, of course, also psychology and so forth. So we originally, in the 19th century, when economics came up, it was called political economy because it has a lot to do with society and so forth and social sciences. Nowadays, if you look at central bankers, they have no clue. They haven't read the classical economists at all. And uh, I doubt that they read Marx and they read, I doubt they read Adam Smith. And uh, the free traders, they all have these bizarre theories that they learned at universities. And as, uh, in my view, they're a bunch of uh, educated morons, educated idiots. Yep, intellectuals, yet idiots. Mark Favre, everyone. And thank you all for tuning in. And with that, <laughs> El Nino has spoken. <laughs>